workers are not just the street cleaners, you know, the garbage man. It, we are all, the majority of us are wage earners. Yes, we have a rising number of bogus self-employed, but they are still workers and we should acknowledge ourselves as being all in the same boat here. And this for me is step number one. You know, that we somehow come to believe that it's just the others when it's actually all of us. So I think number one key thing, you are a worker. Hello and welcome to the Civic Hacker Podcast. I'm your host, Laurie McNeil, founder and director of the Civic Hacker Network and the Civic Hacker Summit. Our mission is to create and empower a globally connected community of people who are using data and technology to create positive social change. We do this by equipping and empowering people to move their change-making projects forward. We also amplify the work our membership is doing by providing a platform through which civic hackers can publicize their projects, collaborate, and get the resources and support they need. This podcast series centers on the interviews and talks that are recorded during Civic Hacker Summit events. The summits are online events where a specially curated, invitation-only group of experts and emerging changemakers share stories, strategies, tips, and tactics for making an impact with data and technology. We just had our most recent summit last month, and hopefully you were able to attend. It, of course, was absolutely wonderful, and I am so excited and looking forward to introducing you to the amazing group of changemakers we featured in the summit in the next season of the Civic Hacker Podcast. As for this season, well, producing the summit is an absolute joy for me, but it takes me away from getting these episodes into your podcast feed. So we've been missing for a while. Hopefully you are subscribed so that you're hearing this episode the very moment it comes out and we are reunited and continue um, learning from this season's featured speakers. Here at the Civic Hacker Network, our motto is Problems Have Solutions. I invite Civic Hacker podcast listeners to join me on a learning journey where we explore the vast array of solutions that are emerging in various forms in communities all around the world and to partake of the feast of knowledge available from people who are leading the way in using data and tech for positive impact. The Civic Hacker Network is global. Right now, around 20% of us live outside of the U.S. in over 13 countries, including Israel, China, Mexico, Germany, the U.K., Ghana, and Australia. We believe that collaboration across all kinds of borders is absolutely necessary for solving problems in our connected world. The amazing person you're going to hear from in this episode is coming to us from Denmark, and her message and work are extremely relevant to you, no matter where you are on this planet. I'm talking about Dr. Christina J. Kolkoff. Regarded as a thought leader on the future of workers and work and the politics of digital technology, Christina is an advocate for the worker's voice. She's the founder of the Why Not Lab a boutique value-driven consultancy that puts workers at the center of digital change. In this capacity, Christina works with unions, interest organizations, and governments across the world on issues such as AI governance, 
workers' data rights and human rights, and the development of responsible digital technology. Christina co-developed WeClock, which is an open-source tech privacy-preserving app to empower workers and unions through the responsible collection and analysis of work-related data. Christina is included in the all-time Hall of Fame of the world's most brilliant women in AI ethics and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. She is also a member of the steering committee of the Global Partnership on AI and advisory board member of the AI and Equality Initiative, which is a program of the Carnegie Council. She's a member of the OECD One AI Expert Group and is affiliated with FAOS at Copenhagen University. Now, I was blown away when I first listened to Dr. Christina Kolkoff at a panel on AI ethics, and I had to reach out to her to see if by any chance she would be so generous as to bring her expertise to the audience at the Civic Hacker Summit. After you hear her in this episode, I think you'll agree that Dr. Kolkoff is someone whose voice and urgent appeal to all of us to take seriously the current and potential harms of digitalization and AI in the workplace need to be amplified and distributed widely. In this interview, we talk about a really important concept that Dr. Kolkoff has developed called the worker tech ecosystem. We also talk about what they're up to at the Why Not Lab, including an overview of the tools they've been creating along with collaborators. In addition to learning about how Christina and the team are leveraging tech and data to help workers and unions, we have some great discussion around the definition of a worker and how that feeds into our identities. We talk about Christina's perspective on security and privacy and the ways in which institutions are failing workers. And we also get into the impacts of commodified versus accessible and transparent data. There's so much food for thought here, and I know you've got the appetite for it. So enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christina Kolkoff. So Christina, thank you so much for joining us for the summit. I'm you know, really excited for the conversation that we're going to have. And you know, just thank you for being here. <laughs> Well, thank you for having me. Well, it's such a delight and I really support your work. So it's an honor. Yeah, thank you so much. And um, so let's get into, you know, kind of your background and what you are um, building with Why Not Labs and the tools that you created. Thanks. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're out, it's in and outside of the Why Not Lab. I've been teaming up with Uh, Nathan Freitas, who's the uh, founder of The Guardian Project, he's based out of Boston. Uh, His team, the UI UX team called OK Thanks, they're based all over the US. And then Johnny Penn, who's a PhD, or he was a PhD, now a full-blown doctor at Cambridge, and he's a specialist in artificial intelligence. And we hooked up when uh, I got a grant at some point to look into how young workers could benefit or tap into the potentials of digital technologies to strengthen their voice, but also their position on the labor market. So we hooked up and and out of that and out of working with amazing unions and and tech advisors, we had a great board um, who really helped sort of nudge us and shift us into how can we tap into that potential, but do it responsibly. 
mm-hmm. and out of that uh, came Weeklock and, and Lighthouse and you know we continue to work on that and improve them and so it's it's just been a great collaboration and that we hope to find more funding to continue. Yeah so what is Weeklock? Can we um, explain for people how they can learn more about it, um, where, you know, where, do, where is it housed and what does it do? And should yeah. they use it? So WeClock is our open source uh, app. So you can find it on uh, Play Store, on uh, Apple's, whatever it's called, App Store. Uh, also for, for, the, uh, for the Apple Watch. And it's our attempt at building something that number one puts privacy first. So this was key. Uh, we didn't want to super survey workers more than they already are. So our frame is we're just going to tap into the data that anyway is being extracted from workers, but give them control over it. Okay. So WeClock also has a website called weclock.it, WeClock it, mm-hmm. uh, where you can read far more about what the app can do as well. But basically... What we do is we tap into the sensors on a cell phone. So, and not all of them, we take the ones that we find important in relation to giving workers the possibility to give work a reality check. So for example, wage theft is the biggest crime against workers across the world. It's a multi-billion dollar crime. Mm -hmm. So let's say we wanted to help workers track their time on location or their time at work or other rights abuses like uh, too short a period between shifts, for example. Or, for example, that workers, if they're working on their feet, a restaurant worker or somebody working in a warehouse, do they get any breaks? How often do they get to sit down? And reversely, for people like me sitting in front of a computer all day, do I get up and move around enough? So, you know, we tapped into location data and, and... and some of the other sensors that then that data is stored on the individual's device and that person can then choose to share that data or not, right? They get sort of daily summaries of, of uh, what's happening, but then they can also collectivize that data. Okay. And so is the fact of storing the data on the person's device, is that part of kind of the control and privacy measures that um, you all you know, designed into the app. Yeah, I mean, we didn't want any backdoor access to that. So so it's totally, you know, we just built the app to give the workers this possibility. And, you know, you might have, I mean, the newest build that we have is, is soon going to be launching that also has a manual time tracking. And that's especially relevant for workers working from home, for example, right, where we're beginning to get reports on this blurring between work life and family life boss sending email nine o'clock in the evening, do you respond and so on. And and what we wanted is that this data or these data, they get stored on the device as, you know, ordinary data bits that you then can share however you want to say your union or to your worker collective as a CSV file so that it then can be used in a collective manner uh, to really sort of draw comparisons and situations of you and your colleagues in that workplace. Okay, so this is not going to the cloud, even when they at the point of um, wanting to collectivize your data, it's it still is kind of not in 
the cloud of we that we clock. You know? <laughs> no, okay, no, because there, you know, there's several yeah. reasons for that. Number one, we we really wanted to put this privacy first principle to practice, yeah. and then secondly, and this is to do with the GDPR, right? In Europe, yeah. the General Data Protection Regulation. And the very, the European Court of Justice has put a very low bar on the difference between a data controller and a data processor. Okay. So, no, it stays on the individual device. We are hoping in future iterations to actually build out maybe sort of like the decentralized web solutions where the data gets automatically uploaded to a safe server somewhere, but certainly not, uh, you know, uh, uh, any anything that's in the cloud of, of big tech. Yeah. Wow. And yeah, which is, I'm sure, been good for adoption, especially, you know, for some vulnerable workers, you know, they don't want to be seen as, you know, they, I can imagine there's a worker that this would serve that really is like real, wouldn't want their data going into an Amazon, you know, cloud storage space, because it's like they're reporting on Amazon. Yeah, yeah, well, that could be one thing, yeah. right? Um, but secondly, you know, what we've experienced now in, in the years since developing WeClock and supporting workers across the world on this is that very, very few out there have, have an understanding of data mm. uh, and of the risks of putting things in the cloud and all of that. It's beginning, we've had scandal after scandal in, in various sort of big tech or algorithms, AI stuff, right? But the ordinary person doesn't really know that yet. And, and this is the interesting, this is why we're so vulnerable to this massive surveillance and monitoring that's going on in our societies. Because I, you know, 99% of all the speeches I gave on stuff like this, People say, well, listen, I've done nothing wrong. So who cares if they take my data? Uh, right? And then you yeah. go, well, listen, this is not just about you. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there's something called data inferences and there's something and, and, and so on and so forth. So yeah, or I think still it's a general awareness gap. Yeah, and is I'm pretty sure it's in the EU that um, they are looking at how to when people say that, you know, I, I don't want my data, I don't want you to have my data anymore, that you can actually, they're looking at ways to pull it out of the learning of, that the algorithm has done, that, you know, is running a product. And, you know, that's something that I think about when people are like, you know, it's not about you. It's like, you're, you're feeding into something that may be used to exploit someone else. And it's like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, yeah. and I feel but very convicted. <laughs> Yeah, but, yeah. but you see, it's so interesting, right? Something that has such a profound impact on our human rights, on our work and career possibilities, on our possibilities as just ordinary citizens. Do you get a bank loan? Do you get put to jail? Do you get arrested? Does your child get removed for, for predictive algorithm has said that child is probably being abused, right? Yeah. All of that has such profound impacts on us, but we have never, ever, ever been taught about this. We've never, you know, had a general public awareness raising around how do you protect your identity? What are, you know, when you click on a recommendation or you're on Facebook or whatever, whatever, these are, you know, this is what you're paying with. You know, nothing is free. That general awareness raising has never happened and it's shocking to me. Yes, and in 
you know, media literacy kind of um, programs that, you know, I'm aware of are, you know, the reach just isn't as extensive as it could be, you know, for children. I don't think it's, you know, here, it's not part of your standard curriculum at all yet. We, you know, COVID comes and we push them online. Yes, uh, exactly. Get their school and it's like, you just, uh, you know, this person made a, a great analogy that, you know, leaving your child on the internet, un, un, like just unsupervised is akin to taking them to the busiest street in the busiest city of the world and just leaving, leaving them there. And yeah, that yeah. awareness for our children, yeah. let alone, you know, corporates and, <laughs> and people who right. work for them. Yeah. And I think that segues nicely into um, Lighthouse because, um, you know, describe that tool and, and what is going yeah, on. Yeah, so there. one of the things that we started to, to realize uh, or, and really get an insight into when we were developing WeClock and we're working with the unions who were co-developing this with us and so on, that we found out that none of them had data governance or data stewardship policies in place. So, you know, you have across the world more and more unions actually gathering data, but then, you know, no internal policies on who has access to this data, what should it be used for, um, should data be ephemeral, and all of these things. So we teamed up with um, some amazing folks who, who are experts on this to create another open source tool. Um, to help organizations, it can either be on a department level or the whole union, but to really start this discussion around, do we need this data? Are the subjects informed? Who should have access? How do we ensure that it's you know, cybersecurity, but also that it's not just an Excel file somebody can download and you know, delete or sell or, or whatever, because let's face it, workers' data is highly sensitive data, yeah. much of it, right? Mm -hmm. So that's why we developed the Lighthouse, uh, was again, as a service to the unions, uh, work organizations in general, to start having that stewardship debate as a, again, as an awareness raising thing around the sensitivity and the, and the value, not in economic terms, but in rights terms of this data. Yeah, and I, I'm curious about, you know, with that tool, do you um, see it as also educating people who are yeah. using that, you know, on some of these things that, you know, haven't been brought to mind, or do you see it expanding more into, um, to, helping unions learn and look out for issues around AI ethics and those kinds of things. It's all part and parcel leading in the same direction, right? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about it that unions themselves uh, are standing in front of what will be a massive digital transformation yeah. of, of, their, of their own organizations and of their policies and of their strategies. And, you know, I mean, there's a bunch of unions that I work with who, as one of them said to me in a workshop recently, she went all quiet and said, oh, my, she said, we're treating our members like big tech is treating us. Hmm. Right. In, in the sense of the lack of sensitivity around the data, the lack of protections around that, the lack of awareness to the human rights uh, 
embodied in this data and how should we cater for that and protect that? How do we avoid over surveillance uh, of, of the members just to get the data that we might one day use? Yeah. So this was this was a stepping stone in this growing awareness that if we ever want an alternative digital ethos in the world of work, it will have to come from the unions. If not them, who really in, right. the, work, in the world of work? But for them to have that alternative digital ethos, which is not about the commodification of workers, which is not about this multi-billion dollar industry of buying and selling data sets, then what is it about? How do we put human rights, workers' rights at the core of any deployment of technology? Yeah, and you mentioned like the private sector and you know, that realization that she had. And I think that is, you know, it's so powerful because we've seen what goes wrong. Like we're living that and yet, you know, as organizers, you know, of any kind, really, I think um, folks could use that tool. You know, uh, I'm thinking of a collaborative effort, you know, in my community where there's going to be some information collected, that's data. And there people need to be thinking about that. Like, well, when you get that story about this person's experience, who has access to it? What, <laughs> where is it stored? And so I think everybody should go use Lighthouse and check check out how you're uh, thinking about these things but yeah we can't afford you know it's people's lives it's people's health you mentioned you know child welfare systems getting involved you can't repeat those same mistakes that we saw happen in private industry and are happening right and at an ever increasing pace and you know to take to bring it back to the world of work I you know I'm quite sure we're already now experiencing that workers don't even see a job announcement on the internet because they a priori have been deemed unfit for that job, Mm. i.e. it's no longer up to us to take that stretch goal, to reach over there. If an algorithm has already decided that we're not fit for that job. And if we all for a second, you know, consider the jobs that we have now, situations we are in, if an algorithm went for the best match, the best fit, do you think you would have that job? Right. Right? And, and, it's, and it's, you know, this is what scares me, is that there's this whole obscure world and some people say, oh, this is dystopia. And it's, but hang on, it's not, right? Yeah. When we already this have- This is our present schools, reality. <laughs> it yeah. is the reality. Yeah. And, and, you know, we, we've got to fix that big time. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, what are you seeing in terms of moving toward fixing that? And do you, like you said, that there's a multi-billion dollar industry around some of these things. And, you know, I think about, you know, how technology has really allowed what we're observing is, you know, workers being exploited at scale, like huge amounts of gig workers, say. Um, And so, like, you were referencing if we put workers' rights, human rights at the center, you know, you know, what's kind of your vision for how that could look and and you know, what does humanity, human rights at scale look like, you know? Um, yeah. and tech, of course, I think has a role because it's just yeah. that's already the genie's out of the bottle. <laughs> so. The genie's out of the bottle, absolutely. 
So I think, you know, Lloyd, to get there, there's certain things we need to do first and foremost. And that is, if I can be so sort of coy and say, we have to wake up. We have to, you know, get out of the illusion that we have been sold, that the internet is emancipatory, that, you know, we're all equal and we all have access and all of this, and actually realize how compartmentalized we have become, right? You are deliberately shown different things than I am. You know, we are fed different opinions, points of views, opportunities. So that's nonsense. So the first thing I think in the world of work that we have to really start remembering is that we are actually workers, mm. that we are yes. all workers, that everybody, the workers are not just the street cleaners, you know, the garbage man. It, we are all, the majority of us are wage earners. Yes, we have a rising number of bogus self-employed, but they are still workers and we should acknowledge ourselves as being all in the same boat here. And this for me is step number one, you know, that we somehow have come to believe that it's just the others when it's actually all of us. So I think number one key thing, you are a worker. And, you know, if I had it my way, there'll be billboards <laughs> all over Europe, all over the United States, all over the world, we are workers. Cause I think we have to be reminded of that. Yeah, and it, that stopped me in my tracks um, when I uh, was, you know, some, somehow by some magic um, discovered a uh, talk of yours and, you know, just that concept of like, if you ask people, are you a worker? Like, think about, you know, I have to think about for myself, like, what was my reaction to that? Um, what parts of my identity did that confront? What, like, why, why the discomfort with it? Why wanting to separate an other a worker from me, a worker? <laughs> so See? I think that's at the heart. Yeah. It's at the heart of it, isn't it? Like, isn't it? Because yeah. if you can yeah. separate, it's part of, you know, de the dehumanization, dehumanization and commodification requires that separation. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and then you have, and I think in the United States, I mean, my word, what a country that has let its workers down, you know, mm. fundamentally, this growing number of people who have no other choice, but to accept exploitative working conditions, you know, that uh, this, this digital labor platforms or otherwise known as the gig economy, where they're stripped of all rights, of all decency. And, you know, the only way that we can turn the tide on that is if we realize that if we, you know, okay, it might be convenient as Tim Wu, he put it in 2018, the tyranny of convenience. Yes, yeah. it might be convenient to take an Uber taxi, right? But we are also thereby sawing off uh, the branch we're sitting on ourselves. And I think bringing back that sense of solidarity is going to be the first major step. And then we should stand up for one another. You know, I think, again, uh, using a great example of how technology can be a support of this. Um, one of the guys in our WeClock universe is, is called Dan Kalauchi. He's a PhD student at the MIT Media Lab. And he did the most amazing thing. You know, Target went out with a big uh, newspaper spread, new algorithm, 
workers, shipped workers will be paid equally and be more fair and more precise and all of this. So he put some machine learning code together and got the shipped workers to send him screenshots of their pay slips with mm. some other information. And it turned out that 41% of all of the workers who participated were not just paid less, but were consistently paid less oh. under this new pay algorithm. And, you know, and then that hit the news. And, and, and I just think this is what, you know, Weeklock, Gigbox, Stan's app, this is what uh, we should use technology for, is notice these people who are being exploited, not say it should be okay to work 70, 80 hours a week, or accept that workers are available to work, driving around or waiting for, uh, uh, you know, tasks to come in, and not being paid for all of that time that they are unavailable to, you know, to their private lives. Right. You know, and so those, this, these are steps along the way of the ideal world of human rights. Now, a third thing in all of this, and in the work I do where uh, this year I've been on the board of a governmental uh, corporation called GPI, the Global Partnership on AI. Mm you know, where I kind of raised awareness to the fact that they, all of the countries in GPI have signed to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, yet, and this is particularly the case in the United States, technology is being used for union busting purposes. You know, you have in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, the freedom of association, the right to collective bargaining. Mm -hmm. Why has no government enforced that right? in the digital age? Why have they not gone after companies who use technology to, to bust the unions or to stop organizing? Right? Right. It it's, blows my mind. Yeah. This is illegal. <laughs> yeah. And it, uh, yeah, and it, it gets, it's upsetting because, you know, you think about the, the laws that we try to get made to protect different rights, you know, now. And it's like, well, what about the laws that already exist? Um, you know, what, yeah, why? Hello, if I can why add Christine? to that, right? <laughs> if we think, just hang on and think about this. At the end of the First World War, world leaders, all men at that point, mm -hmm. got together and signed what they called uh, the Treaty of Versailles. Now, Article, I think it's 427 in that, stipulates in the old English thing for something along the lines that labor should not be seen merely as an artifact or commodity and, or something else. This was reconfirmed at the end of the Second World War in, in now the Declaration of Philadelphia signed in the International Labor Organization, so the United Nations. Now, Article 1, labor is not a commodity, right? Where are we now, where we're being turned into numerous data points, subject to endless influences, you know, productivity measures, efficiency measures, efficient for whom, right. productive at what, but nonetheless everything, and it, you know, your past is part of this, is, is commoditizing uh, the, the, the worker or the human. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we are betraying history here. And this, I think, again, you know, let's acknowledge we're workers, let's bring solidarity back into this. 
And then let's tap into this responsible tech that is being developed and mm -hmm. start fighting back. Because then we can get to what your question was, what does a future look like that is a human rights-based future? Well, I think I'll have to agree with Shazam Suboff there. It would be a future where we have banned trading in human futures. Mm. Uh, that is number one, where we retain the right to be human. With all of our fallacies, our beauties, our, our whatnots, right? right? But that you should be the one who has the right to form and shape your life and not have it predetermined by a for-profit algorithm <laughs> or a million of them. That's number one. And then number two, of course, it would be a society that, that enforces the Universal Declaration of Human Rights the freedom of expression, freedom of association, the right to collective bargaining, and through that, stop the exploitation in the labor market. But to, to get there, I think we need apps like WeClock, like uh, Dan's Gigbox, to prove the injustices we're facing now. You know, anecdotal in, in information touches, but it doesn't change in this world. We need right. proof. Right, sadly, um, yeah, <laughs> and you know, they go together. We get the attention and with the anecdote, and yeah, that has to be followed up because the forces against are so powerful. And like you mentioned, so the the data on the other side, they're using it to algorithmically say, "Oh, look, we're making it fair. We're we're paying everybody the same. Aren't we great?" And it's like, yeah, using the same tools. Oh. Yeah, exactly. To say yeah. we see you, but you know, yeah. Laurie, I call that uh, uh, again. You know, um, the monopolization of truth. Mm. You know, right now, the powers of those who hoard the data and can extract with their eyes the analysis of this data, and we all know, you know, the final analysis is down to the eyes of the beholder, right? Yes. But that power is symmetries is now so starch with, with the very few grabbing the majority of the power that it is them that who can monopolize the version of reality the rest of us are sold. Yeah. And that is within nations and it's globally between uh, the developing economies and the developed economies and, and the growing and growing digital divide, mm -hmm. which is you know really commoditizing um our brothers and sisters in in developing economies yes it's disgraceful yes and i i get very concerned about you know the dna of what's being built today um as other developing countries start to um those you know starts to get into those areas it's like how do you extract that really toxic um foundation, the origins. Um, and yeah, it's, I think, a big problem. And I wonder, the what's the name of the, the global partnership of AI you just mentioned? Yeah, GPI, Global Partnership okay. on AI. Yeah. yeah, so the folks at the table there, you know, what is the um, level of concern or consideration for, um, about the digital divide, you know, and, where developing nations you know, are fitting into these discussions? I mean, 
Good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, my experience, not only in GPI, but also the OECD, the United Nations, where I've, I've been in various committees as well, is it's very difficult as a person in power to put an alternative suggestion on the table if you haven't understood the current situation. Yeah. And what's good, what's bad, what's, you know, its nature. And I sincerely think there's partly a lacking of that understanding. And then there's also industrial interests at play here. You know, if you look at the lobby uh, uh, spending of of some of the biggest companies, uh, (laughs) it's incredible, right? So whilst there are amazing NGOs, whilst there are amazing think tanks who are looking into this, you know, there's not a general public intergovernmental commitment to help the developing uh, countries leapfrog into a far more empowering digital uh, infrastructure than the one that we have. Because if they realize the one that we have is so exploitative, they they would probably think twice about saying, oh, isn't it brilliant that all of these big tech companies are are kitting Africa out with 5G, right? Yeah, speaking of commodification. Yeah. Uh Yeah, yeah, it's gross. So, (laughs) So, you know, it's it's within that ethos that we try to develop a tool which which, uh, puts privacy first. And we, you know, we have plans if we can find the funding to actually, instead of having to have a cell phone on you, and and WeClock works on on also old phones, very, very little data, Mm -hmm. but to actually build a badge that has the sensors in it. And this would be especially important for workers in vulnerable positions or in hostile environments, right? Mm. That it's not something that is a cell phone you have in your back pocket, but can be something very uh, discreet. Yeah. So there's lots of possibilities, but because this is all about workers, there's not a lot of funding. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's that is an <laughs> issue. And I um just ha- had a conversation um a guest speaker at a meeting you know the other night was from an organization that is about funding um you know violence interruption you know efforts and things and i think you know that's probably another part of where people need to get busy and get activated and do something is you know in the funding area like if you are someone who's thinking about starting a fund or, you know, uh, there's folks that, you know, are actively trying to pivot toward uh, more social justice, I guess, causes with yeah. what their funding efforts are. Like, hello, let's look at something. People, let's look yeah. at people. Yes, and, absolutely. And it's, you know, the majority of funders that we've been in contact with can be scale. Can it be productized? Oh. No, we don't want it to be productized. This is against the ethos of we clock. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, scale can happen through bespoke interventions. You know, you have to either, and this was an idea we've had of kind of building an ecosystem of activists, of tech activists who can help the, the marginalized, impoverished organizations. 
to responsibly, you know, start adopting to this digital world mm-hmm. and benefiting from, benefiting from it. I mean, you know, the cost of a data analyst uh, means that a lot of, you know, non-business organizations will never be able to afford them. Right. But and again, you're just thing. building the divide. <laughs> yes, it, get, it will grow. And um, that was another thing that really caught my attention. You know, anytime someone's advocating for uh, people using the data <laughs> and having the professional, <coughs> excuse me, to get to work on that data, um, I'm like, yay, <laughs> because um, the concept of the worker tech ecosystem, you know, that you had um, brought up in this particular talk, I thought was you know, a really good point of, you know, you have this whole gulf, you know, this whole area of needing people that are skilled in data analytics. And, you know, you mentioned the visualization aspect of it as well. And um, yeah, so um, would you explain a little bit more? I saw the whole original thing, but for the people at home, would you explain a little bit more about that concept of the worker tech ecosystem? Yeah, thanks, Lori. Well, it's an idea that the WeClock team that we really having seen how, you know, I'm probably not lying if I say 99% of all unions across the world do not have anybody at hand who can analyze large CSV files, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, you don't just go out and hire somebody unless you also, this is part of our ethos as the WeClock team, is to build a kind of this deliberate digital transformation, to have a white space strategy. How do we want our operations to change, et cetera, et cetera, communication, how we communicate with our members, serve them and everything. So what we discussed is that, you know, there are really good forces around the world, let's unite. Now, for several reasons, you know, that uh, to share the costs of data analysis, data storytelling, data visualization, the, the aid of, uh, of a more deliberate, so to speak, transformational strategy, so organizationally, legally as well around these concepts of data processor, data controller, yeah. but then also essentially on a strategic level. Now, you know, you're in the tech world, and I've come into the tech world. You know, I'm a sociologist, I'm a geographer, right? And suddenly got into the tech world. And speaking from my own experience, you know, when I sit with a group of techies, tech activists or not, it is if my mind gets expanded. Because I, some of the things they tell me is possible, I could never even imagine would be possible. I would never even have asked because I wouldn't even think it would be possible. So part of this worker tech system would be to bring digital activists together with workers and their unions. So the tech activists can understand this world here, their struggles, and reversely, that we can understand what can technology do for good and for bad, Mm -hmm. what could be done, where should we be heading on along a right space development and so on. But you don't know what you don't know. You can't ask questions into a world that you that you don't even know exists, right? I mean, it's like I was, you know, Alice in Wonderland or something, meeting people. <laughs> so it's, 
so this is this is also you know we need to combine the forces they tech activists need to know about the workers world and struggles and the other way around yes and speaking of two groups i mean these days you know you have tech activists or tech people coming from a culture and environment that makes them feel bad or feel a certain kind of way when they're asked if they're a worker. And then you have the, you know, the, the history exactly. and the lore and a lot of misinformation, wrong information about unions and what they are, um, yeah. you know, on top of that. And so getting these two particular groups together, yeah. um, you know, that yeah. it, it would be you know quite powerful. And I feel like also from the union side, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, like when you, even in a for-profit company, still today, there are people, if, if it's not a large enough company fighting, people still have to fight for resources for the data side. Um, you know, I've been there. <laughs> I'm not there anymore because it gets tired. <laughs> but, um, you know, so let, let alone, you know, a, a nonprofit or, or union to, to dedicate resources to that. Um, but then also yeah. the intimidation kind of factor, like you were saying, if you feel like your mind is expanded to this whole other world. Mm -hmm. And I do wonder if people, union, you know, people don't, maybe don't realize how significant and important their domain knowledge is and that exactly. that's actually the key thing. And, you know, these other folks can come, you know, come in and, <laughs> You know, they learn right. something at a boot camp, then they can help, but they need that domain knowledge from yeah. the union side. Yeah. But isn't that, but that, I mean, that's totally true. I mean, totally, you put it like elegantly. This is Shakespearean, uh, but this is great. <laughs> but, but you see, isn't it like that? I mean, I sometimes say I'm lucky to give talks and speeches at universities around the world, you know, and I run around these campuses going, oh, youth is wasted on the young, right? I mean, <laughs> if only we could go back and study now when we have a little bit of knowledge about the real world, then yeah. things might look way different, right? But it's the same thing here. Let's open our curiosity. I mean, if you're mm -hmm. sitting out there, you are a developer, a tech specialist, a data analyst or something, and you want to do good, start looking at the many NGOs, the unions in your area who actually do do good and reach out until we've established this ecosystem, you know, a big dream. Um, there's lots and lots of good uh, places where we could you know, awaken the old town hall. Yeah. And get, yeah, the get real these comments, troops together. Not the fake privatized extractive comments that people say is on the internet the real comments yes the real comments yeah and which which leads me to another thing which is in my human rights uh, future right is and i think we're seeing now more and more examples of this being tried and tested mm -hmm. is building you know in my world worker data collectives data co-ops mm -hmm. uh, but also in general barcelona has actually quite a wonderful data uh, commons going on there. Oh, wow. right? Cool. Uh, where stakeholder engagement, uh, where it's not just, oh, I'm going to listen to you because it says Article 3, I should listen to the stakeholders. No, but real stakeholder engagement. Um, but also one, not necessarily I'm talking about Barcelona, but in general, 
there are skewed debates out there around should we redistribute the value of data as extra earnings to workers or to, to cooperative members or whatever. If we claim that we are accepting that data is a commodity mm. and i.e. that you and I can be chopped up into data pieces and commoditized. This we shouldn't do. Right, yeah. we should really, really, really hold that rights-based approach around data, but then say, you know, that we the collective data rights for this work spot or this neighborhood or this town belongs to the community. Right. And we should all have access to be able to read the data, analyze it again, because truth, what's truth? It's the eyes of the beholder. Yes. And, you know, the open data movements that, yeah. you know, I don't, I feel like they stop, they start, start and stall, um, you know, as we are looking at governments to do it. And, um, you know, I think it's so important um, that that feedback loop is in place of, you know, folks actually looking at it and using it so that, you know, something yeah. in a different area, like, sure, we're starting out with, you know, in the USA, like it's budgets, right? Um, but, and other countries are a lot more ahead of us in terms of opening data, but, you know, including, uh, you know, worker, I guess, worker-centered data. Um, that's, Imagine it's gonna be hard for that to come, right? yeah. It's gonna be very hard for that to come because the moment, especially in the US, companies get any idea that their workers have a little badge on or their cell phone is running a worker centered, you know, you can just imagine what's yeah. gonna happen. But yeah. this is again, you know, where are the human rights protections in the law? But I, you know, I really sincerely think Gigbox that Dan did, We Clock are really, really good ways of, of getting that collective data. Then you should say, how should it be governed? And, and there, you know, there's there's amazing experts um, in the United States on this, talking about how do we how do we govern this data to you know protect it from abuse and, and so on and so forth. But here we had an interesting discussion um, with uh, Professor Sandy Pentland from the MIT, and we were looking at credit unions. Mm. Now, credit unions have the fiduciary responsibility. Could they? Do they, was the question, and it turns out, yes, they have the legal structure to be turned into a data union, a data corporate. Interesting. Okay, now, so imagine what this would do in relation to student debt, for example, in relation to the exploitation of workers, in relation to many things. Right. You know, we just need to go down that avenue. Right, and not let a failure of imagination, willfully sometimes, of other entities stop us and um yeah so do you have any last calls to action or um <laughs> announcements or anything you would like to put out to this audience before we uh, thank you Lloyd. i mean i just think you know everybody who's listening to this you know let's unite <laughs> so to speak i mean let's really if any of you are interested in we had a look at we clock and that was weclock.it we clock it on the web, if any of you are interested in anything that I've mentioned here, I'm sure we can hook up through Laurie, through her network. 
and, and really start building this, this vibrant hub of those who can, maybe some of the digital skills with those who can, the activist skills, and start tabling uh, that alternative for digital ethos. Um, and then, you know, on a really low-key thing, just remember, if you are a wage earner, you are a worker. And have that sense of solidarity and interconnectedness with all of your brothers and sisters out there, because this is what we need. That's right. I'm a worker. You are a worker. All you workers, we are workers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, Christina, again, uh, this has just been a delight and, um, you know, I'm trying to stay calm, but you know, so many things, it's just like, yes. Uh, so thanks again so much for um, Thank you for having here. me, Louis. Hey there, listener. I know you care about our mission to create and empower a globally connected community of people who are using data and technology to create positive social change. With your support right now, you'll help us build a better world, one in which any person who wants to use the tools of the digital age to solve the problems they see in their community is empowered, supported, and effective in creating measurable change. There are three simple ways you can support our work. An annual paid membership, a one-time donation, or a recurring donation. Just go to civic-hackers.org nonprofit to learn more and make your contribution. Your donation today will allow us to ensure that more communities benefit from data and technology projects focused on increasing access to benefits, informing the electorate, advocating for peace and equal justice, serving the vulnerable, and many other issues. It's very easy to donate, so head on over to civic-hackers.org nonprofit today. Thank you for choosing to support Civic Hacker Network programs and this podcast. Problems have solutions. Let's get to work. Thank you. Thank you so much to Christina Kolkloff for such an insightful, eye-opening conversation. And I want to just co-sign that call to action that she made for all of us to unite. Let's continue building that hub of activists, organizers, and people who are skilled in data and technology that she talked about. Remember that we are all workers, i.e. wage earners, and we should realize the power and benefit of acting in solidarity to collaborate with one another. If you're interested in anything Christina shared today, please do check out both weclock.it and the Why Not Lab. We're going to have those links in the show description for you, and you can connect with her and her team there. As a thought leader, she's easy to find. One of the latest places she has appeared was at uh, three workshops she conducted for the International Labor Organization Bureau for Workers Activities. And so we're going to include a link to those recordings as well so you can hear the latest from her. I would also love to hear from you about if and how you are engaging with these topics of human rights and data ethics. Please, you can drop me a line at uh, Lori at civic-hackers.org 
uh, that's my email, or leave a voice message by heading over to civic-hackers.org slash pod. As always, wrapping up this episode, we've got that gratitude attitude. I'm so thankful for the opportunity to connect with and learn from such brilliant women like Christina. She really illuminated this major issue that looms over modern society and, thankfully, also shared a clear vision for ways we can all combat worker exploitation and advocate for better protections and uses of data. I'm thankful for all of the people who have been and are willing to stand up to big tech and push back on this idea and culture of profit and innovation at any cost, regardless of the impact on humanity. Of course, always grateful for you, dear listener. I'm open to your feedback because it helps me improve this podcast and better serve the network. So make sure you subscribe. And if you haven't already, please do me a favor and give us a review, rate the podcast, and that will help other people discover it. And we can continue to spread the good word about the amazing work being done all over the world to make a better community for each and every one of us. Don't forget to follow the Civic Hacker Network on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and claim your free membership to get an invitation to join us on Slack. You can find all the links on our website, civic-hackers.org. I'm Lori McNeil, wishing you all the good things between now and your next listen to the Civic Hacker Podcast. Problems have solutions. Let's get to work. The Civic Hacker Podcast is a production of Civic Hacker Network, a networking and support hub for people using data and technology to create positive change in their communities. The audio is edited by Lily Conway, and Kate Allison writes our scripts. The Civic Hacker Network is a nonprofit organization fiscally hosted by the Open Collective Foundation. Join the network for free at civic-hackers.org.